adult children that she can fall back on because the two sons have passed away. And then number three, she doesn't have prospects of building a new family. And this made her a nobody. Naomi is a nobody. Now, one of the things common in every culture, regardless of the age, is that every culture tells you how you're a somebody or how you're a nobody. Our culture does it all the time. I mean, think about issues of weight. Or think about certain kinds of jobs. Everyone in every culture has to deal with that part of the culture that destroys or builds up the self-image. You're somebody if you have this and this and this, and you're nobody if you don't have these things. Naomi does not have a name, and her family is about to die out. She is returning from Moab to Israel to Bethlehem specifically as a nobody. And it doesn't get much worse than that for an older Middle Eastern woman in the ancient world. Emotionally and economically, socially, psychologically, she is devastated and she is a nobody. Her only hope is to return to Israel and to live sort of this dead-end kind of a life. And there's a very sad thing that happens when she gets to Bethlehem, which is her hometown. At the end of Ruth chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, she says, Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There's kind of a wordplay here. She says, don't call me Naomi any longer. That word means pleasant. Don't call me sweetness anymore. Don't call me by my first name, pleasant anymore. She says, the Lord, the Almighty has afflicted me. You know what my name is now? Call me bitter. Call me bitter. And so in this first section of the book of Ruth, we find it's about the desolation of this woman, Naomi. But then the second part of the book is about the courage of Ruth. Before she leaves, Naomi encourages her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, to go back to their own families. Now why in the world would she do that? Well, they're, they're young widows. They're young women. They still have parents. They still have prospects of marriage. She also knows, though, what kind of life they're going to get into if they go back to Israel. Their life, in some respects, is going to be worse off in Israel because of the, the relationship that Moab and Israel has always had with, at each other. Now, there's a couple of disturbing thoughts in, in chapter, uh, chapter 2 that you don't really think about until you, you think about the history of Moab and Israel. Verses 8 and 9, Boaz says to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and, go, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to what? Lay a hand on you. I've told these fellas that are working for me not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. And then you get down to the end of chapter 2, and Ruth has gone back. She's telling Naomi kind of how her day went. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. One of the things that's kind of chilling when you read this text is how casually she says this. Naomi knows that if her Moabite daughter-in-law goes back with her to Israel... She is going to face attitudes that Israel has always had about Moab, going all the way back to Deuteronomy. 
These, these girls, and, and numbers, these girls will be subjected to danger and to violent kinds of things. I mean, at beating at the easy uh, end of the spectrum, and it goes all the way even to being killed on the other end of the spectrum. And Boaz even has to order his men not to touch this Moabite woman. This is why this famous statement by Ruth, spoken at lots of weddings, is so intriguing and courageous. Ruth replies when Naomi is saying, you need to go back to your gods and go back to your own people. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. In essence, what Ruth is saying to Naomi is that I'm binding myself to you in such a way that whatever happens to you happens to me. And I will never leave you, so help me God. Now, if, if you've ever immigrated to another country, some of us here have immigrated to foreign countries and we know what it's like to immigrate. And we've had, we have people from other countries who have immigrated to the United States. Every act of immigration is drastic. It just is. Every act of immigration is drastic because you're being plunged into the unknown. Now again, some of us know what this is like firsthand, but it's always done, it's always done in the hope of a better life. But here, it's done in the prospects of a worse life. Ruth going with Naomi. That kind of immigration from Moab to Israel is not in the hope of a better life, but in the prospects of of a worse life. To me, that is amazing. And then the final section is that Ruth and Naomi finally return. The women return to Bethlehem. Ruth becomes the breadwinner to support herself and her mother-in-law. And this prompts a relative of Naomi on her husband's side, Boaz, to speak to Ruth, knowing the choices that she has made to stay with Naomi. That kind of gets his eye. He understands what she, is, what she has had to, to put herself into to come back with Naomi to Bethlehem. And, and Ruth is equally amazed that an Israelite man will be kind. That an Israelite man will be kind to her. And to speak kindly to a Moabite woman knowing the history of the two nations. And in the course of, of all of this discovery, Naomi discovers that Boaz is a close relative, a kinsman redeemer. And we go, what in the world is a kinsman redeemer? Well, you know, according to Israelite law, the kinsman redeemer had the right to buy back any ancestral land that was lost to a family. And it also involved marrying into that family, the widow of the dead son, which in this case meant to marry a foreigner, to marry Ruth. Boaz has the right to do this. He's the kinsman redeemer. He is a relative. He, is, he has the ancestral right to buy back the ancestral land to make sure that it stays within the family. But the question is, why in the world would he do it? It's going to cost him money? It's going to cost him a lot of things. Well, there comes that point in the story where Boaz goes to sleep one night and he wakes up to find Ruth, who in essence is saying to him, why don't you and I get hitched? Why don't you and I get married? And that's what all this uncovering of the feet and spreading the corner of your garment over me is all about. And Boaz accepts and he will fulfill the kinsman redeemer duty. And Ruth wins his heart and he will use his social currency to reestablish their line. And they get married and Ruth is placed in the line of David and into the line of the true Messiah. 
And that is basically the book of Ruth between Judges, which is this gruesome book in a lot of ways that deals with a lot of the spiritual decay of Israel during this period of time. And as we get into First and Second Samuel and the kings begin to show up. I think there are some lessons here that I see when we look at this book called Ruth. The first one is never underestimate friendship. You know, friendship is a great thing. To know that in this world you're not alone, and not just because there's somebody that, that identifies with you, but there's somebody that is in solidarity with you. I mean, the best kind of marriages are the kinds of marriages that, that have friendship as, as a core component of that relationship. You never underestimate the power of friendship. And at the beginning of this story, Naomi tries to get Ruth to go back to her people and to her gods. And Ruth says, I don't want my people in gods. I want you, and I want your God. And the interesting thing here is that she uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, to describe what she wants to come upon her. She says, I want you, and I want Yahweh to be my God. Because she's using the covenantal name of, of God, I believe that this is completely a conversion story. Now, notice this about Naomi. She's in desperate straits. Why would she send these women back? Is it because she believes that their gods can and will bless them, bless her? No. Because she thinks that she can do better without Orpah and, and Ruth in her life? No way. She sends them back to Moab because she loves them. And that's why she gives this very tender-hearted benediction of Yahweh on them. She says in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Naomi is loving these two women by putting their needs above her own needs. Is she going to do better without them? Absolutely not. Naomi makes God look credible through the love that she has for these two daughter-in-laws. And Naomi has learned how to love people who believe differently from her in a way that is able to transform them. And she says, the best thing for you, not for me, but the best thing for you is to go back to your people. And, in that, and, 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 and Ruth knows this. Ruth knows that Naomi is going back to a dead end, that, that she is going back vulnerable, that she is going back as a widow without sons. In the ancient Eastern world, mothers depended on sons to take care of them. In, in the ancient Eastern culture, sisters were closer to the wife's husband than the, the, the husbands were to their wives in so many of the cases because blood was thicker than water. Blood was thick. And, and, and Naomi knows this, and Ruth knows this, and Naomi sends Ruth back, and Ruth says, I'm not going. Naomi has learned how to love people who believe differently from her in a way that transforms them. Never underestimate the power of friendship that you have with anybody in this community. 
in which they come in contact with a person such as yourself who has learned by the transforming power of God and His Word, banging around in our mind and in our soul and in our heart, that has transformed us into the kind of people who know how to love the people that are made in the image of God. It is a powerful thing in any culture. But not only do we never underestimate friendship, but we never lose hope. You know, there's signs of hope in every day of every life. And when you compare Ruth, one of, the, one of the really interesting things about Ruth is that when you take this book of just a couple of chapters and you compare it to any other book in the Bible, one of the things that sticks out is that there's absolutely nothing miraculous that takes place in this book. You know what you find in the book of Ruth? What you find in the book of Ruth is life. The good times and especially the hard times and the rough times and the miserable times. And one of the messages of the book of Ruth is that even in the mundane times where nothing dynamic, at least in our own eyes, is taking place, God is still at work. God is working in a million ways to engender that hope in your heart. But you notice what happened. And Naomi gets back to Bethlehem, and what does she say? Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. What does she say about her life when the townspeople come out to her and say, Oh, Naomi. She says, I left full, I have come back empty. And what's ironic in all of this is that she has walked back into her hometown with the one human resource who by God's power is not only going to take care of her, but also splice her very life into the lineage of David and the Messiah. And Naomi doesn't see it yet. I think God loves to work in the hard times. I, I think that there's a really important, there's lots of reasons why, why human beings go through hard times. I think about my own spiritual life and I think about, you know, when I'm flying high as a kite and I'm on the mountaintop, what motivation do I have to change? I don't really have much. When I'm on top of the world and I feel like everything's great and hitting on all cylinders and the tank is full and I'm going, going, going and I feel like I'm full and not empty, what motivation is there for me to consider my life and to make any changes or to be transformed or to challenge myself or to confront myself in those areas of my soul that need to be confronted? There aren't any motivations for that. One of the reasons that we go into the valleys, those dark places, those places where it feels like we're in a vice, and it feels like it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter and darker and darker and darker, is that it's in those moments that we become humble enough to see that there are things in our life that need to change. But at the same time, that's one of those places in life, during our own lifetime, where faith is taken to a different degree. Because it's really easy. There's just something about human beings, the way the human being operates, that when we're on top of the world, we're with God and God is easy to follow. It's in those difficult moments where we have to have the faith to hang on to those things, as we talked about this morning from a C.S. Lewis quote, to hang on to those things that our minds have latched and considered solid and to not give them up as our moods change. God loves to work in those hard times and to develop people's faith. And people of faith will say, even in the hard times, I may not see it. I don't know how it's going to end up. I don't know where the doors are. I don't even know where the path is leading right now. But I know that God, who is the God of the living, the, the, the God of my own life, the God who is faithful to His Word, that God is still at work in my life. 
And where do you find the power to follow through on that? To be the kind of friend that loves others for their sake and not for your sake. To love others not because there's going to be a return on the investment, but love them because they're made in the image of God. And where do you find the power to say there is hope? There is hope in whatever circumstance that I find myself. Well, consider why Ruth is in the genealogy of Jesus. Consider why Ruth is in that genealogy. She is the one who says, if I keep my life, Naomi will lose hers. But if I lose my life, then Naomi will get hers. Ruth says, I'm going to take Naomi's poverty on me. Ruth is the one that says, I will take her marginalized life on me. Ruth is the one who says, I will become poor in order for her to become rich. And it's Ruth who left her own country and goes into a land where she is a stranger. Does that remind you of anyone? When you see what Ruth is willing to do for Naomi, which makes her Ruth, and then you consider what it is that the Christ has done for you, you are so transformed and so changed and so melted by that that He becomes a treasure that you will always grip. He, he, becomes, he becomes the power, the enlightenment of, of, in, your, in your, your eye of, in life of how these things can be done. And the great thing is, is that it all ends in a blessing. It ends with the blessing of, of not, just, not just being made rich and taken care of and befriended in this life but given life eternal. And the immeasurable, plumless treasures of heaven and those resources become your resources. And it's not just friendship with God. It's sonship and daughtership with God because of what the Christ has done in saying that I will take your poverty on myself. I will take your marginalized life on myself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made Him who had no sin to be sin in order for us to receive the righteousness of God. And when you somehow get your mind halfway around that thing, it melts you down and it changes your life in such a way that you, you follow after Him all the days of your life. Not out of duty, but out of love. Not out of legalism, but out of a heart that has been transformed. Loving Him. Every single moment. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. Maybe there's some ways that our church can minister to you. Maybe you've decided that you want to give your life to Jesus or maybe you need the prayers of the congregation to strengthen you at a time in your life where you don't see the hope, where you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. If those describe you in any way, what we'd like for you to do is to come down and to talk to our shepherds who are going to be down here at the front while we stand and praise God together. Let's stand and sing.